Today's episode is brought to you by Talkspace. We're all dealing with things, uncertainties in life, us included. It's amazing, though, how much better things can feel when you have an unbiased, licensed professional there to listen. That's why we do therapy through Talkspace. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use the code MYTHS to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's MYTHS and Talkspace.com. As a quick disclaimer, there's a brief mention of sexual assault this week and then further non-explicit weirdness. You'll know what I mean when you hear it. If you'd like more info, please check out mythpodcast.com or follow the link in the show notes. This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in Welsh folklore and we'll learn how baking can start a war, newborns can swim like dolphins, and how stepping out of a slick bathtub onto the back of a waiting goat is dangerous. But not for the reason that you think. The creature this time is why you might have a headache after swimming, if you're lucky enough to still have a head. This is Myths and Legends, episode 217, Bringing Home the Bacon. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. And others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Bringing home the bacon. We're back in the Mabinogi, a collection of stories from Welsh folklore. As I've talked about, they're mostly not related to each other, with only one character making an appearance in every story. So if you're just jumping in now, don't worry about listening to the other ones. It's set somewhere in the 4th to 7th centuries, in a magical, mystical Wales, where wizards roam the lands, kings can be giants or gods, a spell can turn a kingdom into a wasteland, and the rules of reality don't really seem to apply. In short, it's amazing, and we'll jump right in. Gilvaithway bit his lip. Hello, uncle. His uncle, King Math, nodded. Hey, Gilvaithway, what's happening? Gilvaithway turned to his uncle's foot virgin and bowed low. Hello, Gilwin. She smiled politely. Hi, Gilvaithway. What brings you here for the fourth time today? Gilvaithway didn't say. Gilvaithwey, the foot virgin, more on that later, already knew. Gilvaithwey turned back to his uncle. Did he still need to have his feet on the lap of a virgin or else he would die? His uncle nodded. Yep, still had to have his feet in the lap of Gilwin, renowned virgin in times of peace. In war, he could give her a break and take his big medieval feet from her lap without dying. It uh, wasn't fun for anyone involved. He had to sit down constantly. She had to sacrifice any personal life or love or ambition to always have his feet on her lap. It was difficult all around. Kilvaithway sniffed. <laughs> he understood. He understood more than his uncle knew. With that, he ran crying from the room. Math, the king, nodded. Cool, cool. How normal. Back in Gilvaithway's house, he was pounding on the wall, weeping and crying out. Why? His brother, Gwytheon, who was in the room the whole time, looked over 
if he was going to be sitting there crying the whole time, did he want to talk about it? So he could stop sitting there crying? Gilvithway looked to the ground. There was no point. Gwithion shrugged. Okay. But of course, Gilvithway continued. There was no point. If he said anything, Uncle Math would know everything. Once whispering went on between two people, no matter how quiet. Once the wind caught hold of it, then Math would know about it. Gwithion closed his mildly anachronistic book and sighed. So, Gilvaithway loved Gyuwen, the foot virgin, then. Gilvaithway gasped. How did his brother know? Gwithion rolled his eyes and stood. Without a word, he left the house. Gilvaithway was still sitting there, still crying into his hands, when he heard the creak of a door next to his uncle's throne room. It was Gwithion. He was going to tell their uncle. Less than a minute later, Gilvaithway kicked open the door. He screamed that his uncle shouldn't believe a word his brother was saying. They were all lies. Sweet, beautiful lies. King Math looked Gilvaithway. Uh, okay? So there aren't these delicious animals. What did you call them? Pigs, uncle, Gwithion said, turning to his brother with a glare. Gilvaithway cocked an eyebrow. Wait, uh, no, never mind. What are those? Gwithion said if he could continue, yeah, he heard of something called pigs in the south. They were kind of hard to describe. Like fat little cows with skin kind of like people. Supposed to be delicious, though. The king to the south, Prideri, just got a whole mess of them from the fairy world. Did Math want pigs? Because Gwithion, famous wizard, could get him pigs. Uncle Math, the king, shrugged. Sure. He was up for eating some tiny, fat human cows. But what if Prideri refused to give them up? Gwithion smiled. Oh, he wouldn't refuse. Gwithion the wizard would bring a team of eleven, and they were going as poets. Really? Poets? That doesn't seem like it would necessarily get the job done. Gwithion said that Uncle Math was the king, so he could interrupt Gwithion's epic transition to the next scene, but yeah, poets. Don't worry about it. They would be back with the pigs, no matter what. I don't know. I'm kind of liking tiny, fat human cows better, Math said, and repositioned his feet on Gilwin's lap. With the onside, <sighs> okay, they will be back with the tiny, fat human cows, no matter what. Poets, though? Gilvaithway asked his brother, Gwithion, as they walked with nine other guys to the southern kingdom. Bards, yes, Gwithion replied. Bards occupied an interesting place in Celtic societies. They could move between kingdoms much more easily than others and get an audience with the king. So, yes, they were bards. Gilvaithway was curious. How did this help him get with the virgin holding his uncle's feet? Gwithion asked if he would like to talk about it loudly with all the other guys from their uncle's court here on the road. No? Okay, let's keep going. They eventually made their way to the southern kingdom, where, the first night, they sat listening to the bards tell stories. It was then that King Prideri gestured to the new guy. How about a story from you? In addition to being the nephew of a king, and a warrior, and an actual wizard, 
Gwythion was actually a very good storyteller, the best storyteller in the world, according to the Mabinogi. After the story, with the entire room moved to tears, Gwythion sat down with the king, saying that he had a bit of a request. The pigs. The king nodded. Oh, wow, pigs. Good name. That's why he was the best storyteller in the world. They've been calling the creatures beady-eyed mudbugs. But no, sorry, he couldn't. He made a promise to his people that he wouldn't let any of them go until they had doubled in number. He had made a promise, and he couldn't go back on that. Gwythion nodded. He read it as a no, but like a soft no. He had left telling the king that there was a way out of his promise. And Gwythion would reveal that tomorrow. The way out of his promise, of course, was by breaking his promise. As Gwythion, his brother, and nine other guys dressed as poets stood out on the moors that night, Gwythion worked his magic. Literally, he summoned 12 stallions with 12 hounds with gold collars and leashes that all looked like they were made of gold. When the king of the south, Praderi, looked at the animals, he decided unilaterally that, wow, a dozen stallions and a dozen hounds for what? A handful of animals that might be tasty someday, maybe? He would be stupid not to take this deal. So he took the deal, and Gwythion and friends took the pigs and left immediately. Rushing down the road, Gwythion put all grumbling to rest with the revelation that even his magic had limits. The horses and dogs would disappear before morning light, and he wanted to be as far away as he could be from the southern kingdom when that happened. So we have some good news, and we have great news, Gwythion said to his uncle, King Math, when they arrived back home. The good news? They got the pigs. Tiny fat human cows, the king corrected. Sure, the wizard replied. Also, they were at war, so the king could stand up. Gwythion looked with elation at the king, and the king smiled back, stepping to the ground. He stood, and not dying, he clapped. All right, nice, wait, they were at war? Gwythion shrugged, yeah, a small one. Pridari had mobilized 21 cantrefs against him. 21 cantrefs, the king shouted. 21 medieval Welsh land divisions that aren't kingdoms in themselves, but rather key for administration of Welsh law? That's what the word means, yes, Gwythion replied, eyeing Gwythion. Math did the, well, math. Not gonna lie, Gwythion. 21 cantrips? That's that's a lot of cantrips. That's like almost half of Wales. You have what? 11 cantrips under your control? You'll be fine. You should probably get going, though. We heard horns behind us when we were riding back, Gwythion, the wizard, said. The king nodded a goodbye to his nephews and his virgin footholder and rushed out to muster his forces. That bacon better be worth it. Being able to move around for the first time in months... Gwythion flew from the room, or tried to. Gwythion caught her arm. He said that he and his brother needed to have a word with her. Her ladies-in-waiting stood there, but Gwythion barked for them to get out. Gilvaithway unsheathed his sword, and they listened. Gwythion smiled at the young woman and tossed her to Gilvaithway, who took her back to his uncle's room. Gwythion watched the door.
the news of the assault was drowned out by the war that had been started so that the assault could take place. Pradary, the king in the south, who had survived a war in Ireland and years of his own kingdom being a wasteland, was losing. He wouldn't give up, though. And, as the wronged party, he would fight to the last man. Still, there had to be a better way. Then, he thought of something. Single combat. Him, the king, against whatever champion the kingdom of the north chose. If he won, he would get his beady-eyed mudbugs back. If they won, they could keep them. A man in the north rose in response. Gwytheon, the wizard who facilitated the assault and who started the war, he said as much, that he started this. So it would be shameful if another man fought on his behalf. Pradary looked on the wizard, sneered, and agreed. This will be quick. He was right, but not for the reason that he thought. When he struck against Gwytheon, he found that his spear couldn't pierce the man's cloth. The shock gave the wizard the opening that he needed. And the men of the south watched in horror as the spear exploded out the king's back. Pradary died, and the 21 cantrefs that followed him surrendered on the spot. They were at peace. So, of course, King Math collapsed. He was rushed home, back to Gwyn, who only shook her head. He needed another now. The king asked how this could be, and she flat out told him. She was raped by the king's nephew, Gilvethwe. She hadn't been particularly quiet about it either, and literally everyone knew. Not everyone, the king said with a growl. For a medieval legend, I'm pretty proud of King Math for doing the right thing. He believed Gwyn, and immediately sent word that Gilvethwe and Gwytheon should be arrested on sight. As for Gwyn, he asked her if she would be his wife, and he would give her, quote, authority over his kingdom. When the nephews didn't show up after a couple of weeks, the king turned up the heat a little bit and put out an edict. No one was to give them food or shelter, or else they would be accomplices. A couple days later, his nephews were at his door. Gwytheon was the first to bow low, saying to his lord that they were at his will. Math sneered at his will. At his will. Had it been his will, Pradary would still be alive, and they wouldn't have lost all those men to a pointless war. There was no compensation for this shame. Gwytheon asked what he could do to make things right. Math replied that he was getting to that, and really, this whole conversation, all this, was just him stalling so his men could get into position. At that, Math's warriors tackled the wizard and, overpowering him, wrenched the magic wand from the wizard's hands. They walked it over to their king, Math, and handed it to him. Outside, the king said. The warriors grabbed the wizard and his brother and dragged them both outside. Once they were in front of the castle, Gwytheon narrowed his eyes at his uncle. If the man was going to kill him, then he should just get on with it. The king smiled. Kill them! Oh, they should be so lucky. He pointed the magic wand at the pair. Gilvaithwe was transformed into a hind, a female deer. And his brother, the wizard, Gwytheon, was transformed into a stag. The pair stood there, and Math said that since they were in league with each other, they would live together over the next year. They were now controlled by the instincts of the animals they inhabited. Every instinct. They would live together. They would mate together. They would have an offspring together. In a year's time, they were to return. The king looked to his men. 
Well, get rid of them. The men grimaced. Whoa, that's... They were brothers. Ugh, yikes. They turned to the deer. Uh, Just get out of here. This is grossing everybody out. We'll catch up with this very uncomfortable scene, but that will be right after this. Hey, so those guys are back? The king heard a year from that day. Math said that the man should be more specific. Uh, those two guys you turned into deer for starting that war and assaulting your now wife. Look, you're the king in all. So, uh, you know, carte blanche, do whatever you want. But that's pretty dark, even if they absolutely deserved it. We're kind of glad it's over, the warrior said. And then paused. It, It's not over, is it? The king rose to see not two deer, but three. The extremely unhappy couple had a child. The king pointed the wand at the trio, and magic shot from it. In an instant, the stag was a sow, the hind was a boar, and the baby deer was a human boy. The king took the boy and baptized him, and told the pair to continue as they were, as pigs this time, and to once again return in a year. It was rinse and repeat for the third time when, after they returned with the child, the king turned them all into a wolf and a she-wolf. And they, once again, after a year, returned with a pup. This time, the trio was all transformed into humans and the brothers broke down, pleading with the king to please, please don't do it again. They were sorry. They were so sorry. He said that they had been punished enough for their crimes and no one would ever forget that they had both been forced to go full Loki, having a child in animal form. The king ordered them both washed and brought before him. There was another matter to attend to. When the brothers stopped shuddering, they asked their uncle, so he hadn't had a foot virgin this whole time. Meant he'd been okay? Was he sure he actually needed a virgin to hold his feet? Story doesn't say, the king replied, but then said that the time had come for him to replace Gion. Both men cringed when they heard her name. He asked the men if they happened to know any young virgins. They looked at each other. They weren't really in the know, given that they had spent the last three years chasing each other around the wilderness, but their cousin, Ariantrad, should fit the bill. The king nodded, and I guess kept the pair on as advisors, probably to the horror of his wife, and also them. A few weeks later, Ariantrad stood before the king, Kind of a sensitive question, but to be my foot virgin, you kind of have to be, you know. So, are you a virgin? King Math asked his niece. She said yes. She believed that she was. The king nodded, then hesitated. What did that mean? She said that in her mind, she was a virgin. Okay, the king replied. It's just a weird way to say it. Okay, okay, I'll put your mind at ease, she said. I'm 100% a virgin, depending on your definition of virginity. Oh, what was all that other stuff? Math asked. The girl shook her head. She was just clearing her throat. Math took a deep breath. He was going to need her to step over the magic wand here on the floor. She nodded. (laughs) Yeah, sure. She took one step over the wand, and a yellow-haired, six-year-old boy dropped from her. 
She looked at it. What? How did that get in there? Uh, Also, bye. She took off in a run while the rest of the room was distracted by the boy that just dropped from her. And so Gwithion was the only one that noticed when something else fell. The story just says that it was a, quote, small something. Another place calls it a lump of flesh. Whatever it was, Gwithion scooped it up and hid it in a silk cloth. While the rest of them were marveling over the blonde six-year-old newborn, Gwithion safely stored the lump of flesh in a chest at the foot of his bed. Meanwhile, Math was so excited about this. I guess still not needing a foot virgin, he traveled with the boy, named Dylan, to the coast to have him baptized. He watched the boy submerge into the water. Oh, he had big plans for this supernatural human baby. Pradari had been one of those, and he had done epic things. And, hey, why, why was the kid not coming back up? That humans, humans need air to live, right? Dylan did surface, but like 60 feet out into the ocean, and he was rearing up like a dolphin. The last math saw of him, he was swimming off into the sunset, doing flips and stuff, having taken to the water and realized his true nature, or something. Yeah, I guess he was a water creature, secretly. All math knew was that he wasn't going to have a superpower baby. Gwithion the wizard awoke to... crying? He sat up in bed. It was coming from the chest at his feet. He gasped. The lump of flesh he had put away and apparently forgotten about. Which, who does that? He threw open the chest. And, to not near enough surprise, he found that a baby had grown from the lump that fell from Arianrod, his cousin. He scooped the baby up, and the baby stopped crying. Gwithion wanted to keep his baby both secret and safe, so he found a wet nurse in town who agreed to feed the baby. And after a year, the baby was like a two-year-old. After four, he was like an eight-year-old, who also shaved. Gwithion pumped his fist. Yes! He had a supernatural, fast-growing hero baby that sometimes pop up in myths all around the world. The boy loved the man he identified as his dad. Papa Gwithion loved the boy. Still, he didn't want to keep secrets he took the boy to go see his mother. That's not mine, Arianhat said when she looked at the eight-year-old. Did Gwithion know how she knew that? Because she never gave birth eight years ago. The wizard said that she did, however, drop a lump of flesh when she ran out of King Math's throne room. Did she remember that? The woman sneered. That day had been her undoing. She asked what the boy's name was. Gwithion replied that he didn't have one. He wanted the boy's mother to name him. Arianhrat scoffed. Well, the boy would have no name, because he wouldn't get a name unless he received it from her. Gwithion blinked. And she wasn't giving him one. Oh, no, I got it. Is, is that all? Gwithion asked. And the woman nodded. Gwithion and his adopted son left that minute. Arianhrod wasn't as surprised or suspicious as she should have been when a ship pulled up to her kingdom the following week, offering to make shoes for her out of Cordovan leather. 
I don't know why, but this is the second time the fallback career of a major character in the Mabinogi has been luxury shoemaking. Still, it worked. After a servant of Aranhrag came out to inspect it, she put in an order for several shoes, sending it along with a measurement of her feet. The shoemakers, who definitely weren't Gwithion and the boy in fake mustaches or something, purposefully made the shoes too big and refused to make more until Arianthrod herself came out. This Cordovan leather wasn't just seaweed with a magical illusion cast on it. It was expensive. She did, and found the older shoemaker cutting and the younger one stitching. As the older one measured her foot, a wren landed on the deck of the ship. The boy stood, and, taking the spool of thread, hit the wren in the leg. Arianthrod laughed. Ah, that fair-haired one has a skillful hand. Ha! the shoemaker said, ripping off his mustache and pointing to the boy. That boy has his name now. He's Sheshaw Giffis, which literally means the fair-haired one with a skillful hand. With a flick of his wand, the ship disappeared, and they were all standing in the water. Well, not Arianhad, who was sitting half-submerged with her foot wrapped in seaweed. Gwithian She giggled as they ran up to the shore, but Arianhad shouted a curse after them. The boy would never get weapons unless he was armed by her himself. Gwithian stomped on the ground. Come on, that is not fair. He shook his head. Whatever, whatever. If he needed to be armed by Arianthrod, then he would be armed by Arianthrod. Arianthrod sat up in bed. They were under attack. The trumpets sounded in the early morning. She met the two poets in the hallway, the bards that could travel between kingdoms and weren't just Gwithion and Shea wearing goatees this time. They said it was bad, real bad. There was like an army and stuff outside. They had weapons and, and, and horses and banners and swords. Oh, a ton of swords. Like, think of a number of swords you think is a lot of swords and add like 30 swords. It's a lot. It's scary. His assessment was that they should lock up and defend and, uh, you know, hope not to die. Arianthrod said she agreed. There was plenty of food and weapons in this fortress. They could outlast anything while they figured out how to get a message to their allies. The older bard said, awesome, awesome. He would arm himself and make sure everyone was inside if she would, if she would arm this young man. Like, really, just go nut, just pile it on, arm to the teeth, and then maybe to the eyes, too. She nodded. For the safety of her people, absolutely. After she finished arming the man, she saw the older bard just standing there. What, did he finish locking up? Why was he just standing there snickering? Oh, come on. The two men burst out laughing and high-fived. Got the weapons. Boom. She stomped on the stone floor. Seriously. Well, well, he wanted to marry someday, right? Well, he would never have a wife from the human race that now inhabits the earth. Ha, that one didn't even involve her. <laughs> Gwithion said that that didn't matter. He was a wizard. Thanks for the weapons. And it didn't matter, apparently, because being a wizard, he could make his foster son a wife. He instructed Shay to gather three different types of flowers. And despite the questionable ethics of creating a being and giving it reason and thought, only to tell the fully grown newborn that she must marry the hero guy in front of her, Blatewith which literally means flowers, did so. And the couple was reportedly happy. It was at this time that Gwithion informed Math of the existence of his nephew, 
in that the kid was one of those magical hero kids who aged super fast, Math was so excited that he just gave She Cantref, an area of land, and Gwithion conjured a castle looked out on the sea. The people, their king, and Blatewith were reportedly happy, until Granu came to town. He was the lord of the next Cantref over, and he was out hunting when he accidentally stayed out too late, night drawing near. He knocked on the gates of She and Blatewith's castle, it only being proper to invite him in, Blatewith did just that. I say Blatewith because, because She was out on a business trip, visiting his uncle, Math. Granu, the neighboring chieftain, came in, took off his riding clothes and helmet, did one of those slow-motion head shakes where his hair went everywhere, and he made eye contact with Blatewith. And that was it. The story says there was no part of her that was not filled with love for him. He felt the same way. She dismissed her ladies, he picked her up and carried her to the bedroom. The pair spent three days and nights in each other's company, Blotte with only allowing Granu to leave when she was sure her husband was returning. As the pair sat together one last time, with Blotte with reclining on Granu, he asked her, um, how could she, put it delicately, murder her husband? That didn't give her pause at all. Being created to be his wife, a life-changing decision that had been forced on her and over which she had absolutely no control, she had now finally found love. And she, and she desperately wanted Shay out of the picture. But he was one of those hero types who couldn't be killed by a simple, convenient stabbing. She told Granu to stay true to her. She would find out and let him know. Together, they would kill She, and Granu would be able to take his place. As chieftain and king, he kissed her goodbye mere hours before She returned. That night, at dinner, She looked at his wife. Why was she so down? She said that he had been gone too long. It made her afraid. What if, what if he died? He laughed. He was one of those hero types. It wouldn't be that easy to kill him. She turned to him, taking his hands into hers, begging him, asking him to please tell her how she could help him avoid his death and also maybe write it out in summarized bullet points. It turned out that the only way to kill She was to do it with a spear that was crafted only on Sundays when people were at mass over the course of a year. Even then, he can't be killed indoors or out of doors on horseback or on foot. She sat back. Okay, then how could he be killed? He smiled. She was his wife, who he and his creepo magician uncle had crafted solely for that purpose, so she could be trusted. He could be killed by making a bath for him on a riverbank, constructing an arced roof over the tub, and bringing in a billy goat and standing it beside the tub. He would have to have one foot on the billy goat and one foot on the edge of the tub, if he was hit by the spear that had been crafted exactly for that, at that precise moment, he could be killed. Blatewith nodded. Wow, so that was pretty easy to avoid. Would he mind demonstrating that for her sometime, just so she could see how easy it was to avoid? Maybe, I don't know, a year and a week from now? She shrugged. <laughs> Nothing suspicious about that date. Sure. A year and a week later, Blatewith called out to her husband. 
Okay, so he was standing on the edge of the tub with one foot on the tub and the other on the goat. Cool, cool. So if he was struck with a spear now, he would die? He nodded, barely able to stay standing. This was actually super slippery. He was going to come down. But as soon as he finished that sentence, a spear came flying from a bush. It was Granu, who had spent a year not going to mass, making the only weapon that could kill She. It found its target and stuck in the back of She. Instantly, the man turned into an eagle and flew off into the sky, the spear still sticking out of him and him leaving a trail of blood. Blotewith took Granu in her arms. It was over. It was finally over. Her husband was dead, and they could be together. Granu looked at the still-alive eagle, struggling to flap off in the distance. Was she sure he was dead? They shouldn't go after him? They should go after him and make sure. Nah, we'll be fine, she said, and kissed him again. Yeah, you really should have gone after me to make sure, Shay said to the surprised couple when he walked in on them one year later. Turned out the magician's nephew was missed, and Gwithion, having learned of the young man's disappearance, went hunting for him. Remember, Gwithion was kind of like his uncle that raised him, the magician. He started with the trail of blood and followed it all the way to a pig farm. When one of the sows was released in the morning, she made a beeline for a tree that dropped fun snacks of rotting flesh and maggots. Ngwithion inspected the tree. He found the dying eagle, who, whenever he shook himself, shook off said rotting flesh and worms. Ngwithion helped his young nephew down, healed him, and together they confronted Blatewith and Granu. Blatewith's punishment for her role in the attempt was to be turned forever into an owl, hated by all birds and forced to never show her face in the light of day again. Granu bravely groveled at Shay's feet, asking if he wanted land, his land back, or gold or silver for this insult. You know, or to kill him, which Granu guessed was a third option. Who wanted to go for that, though? Turned out, Shay wanted to go for that, but he wanted to be specific about it. He wanted Granu to be in the exact same position as him, on a goat, getting out of a bath under an outdoor roof, and Shay would strike out at him with a spear he had prepared. Granu agreed with one teeny tiny little addition. Could he have a stone slab placed in between him and Shay? Shay shrugged. Didn't see why not. Thinking that he had been saved, Granu bowed low, saying that God would repay him for his kindness. And God maybe did? The day came, and Shay threw the spear so hard that it went clean through the stone, and then clean through Granu, who died maybe because he was getting up there in years and had been through a lot, but also maybe because he watched his nephew throw a spear through a stone to kill a guy, King Math almost immediately abdicated, approaching Shay over Gwyneth, his kingdom. And thus, we end the fourth branch, the fourth story of the Mabinogi. finishes up the four main branches. However, there are more stories to tell. That will be for a later date, because next week, we're telling the story of Tamlin 
from Scotland and another from Africa, where we'll learn that, as always, you want to have your affairs in order in the event that one of your children is pure evil. If you'd like to support the show, for less than the price of dirt cologne, cologne that smells like dirt, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that aren't the equivalent of going to roll around in the yard. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this time is the Mwanamangaswak from the Penobscot people in Northeast North America. If you go swimming and get an axe to the face, well, you just met this creature. And no, they didn't throw an axe at you while you were swimming. They were the axe. They are tiny people who are so thin that they practically disappear when they're viewed in profile. They're tall and lanky, and their head is an impossibly sharp axe head. They live in streams and pools and can survive in brackish water. For the Penobscot people, they're said to be generally harmless, only messing with clam traps, overturning canoes, and cutting nets with their faces. For everyone else, they'll just cut faces with their faces. It's said that when a clump of dirt resembles a person or an animal on the riverbank, that's this creature, making its presence known by leaving you a fun sculpture. It's also said to be a good luck charm, probably because you won't go for a swim and end up with a face to the head. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.